continue uh, our journey through the Bible this year, we're going to look at, at Acts chapter 20. And Acts chapter 20 records the Apostle Paul's farewell address to the church at Ephesus. Now, if you know anything about Scripture, uh, then you know that the book of Ephesians comes after the book of Acts in the Bible, but it was also written after the events in the book of Acts. So Paul here, he, he, he dies, or he writes the book of the, the letter to the Ephesians four years after he gives his farewell address, but he doesn't know what the future holds. Paul, he is leaving Ephesus. He's been there for three years now. Uh, he's, taught with, he's taught them. He's helped start this church. He's established a church at Ephesus, and now he is leaving to go to Jerusalem. He feels like God has called him to go to Jerusalem and to preach the gospel, and he fully expects to die in Jerusalem. Right now, the church at Jerusalem is suffering some incredible persecution. That's, that's one of the reasons that the gospel was spread throughout the world at this time. Because you remember, we saw last week in Acts chapter 1, God commanded them, said, you're going, to be, you're going to stay here in Jerusalem until you receive the Holy Spirit. Then you'll be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. So God told them, you're going to stay in Jerusalem until you receive the Holy Spirit power, then you are going to, uh, some of you are going to stay in Jerusalem and worship and minister there, but the rest of you are to go out to the entire world to share the gospel. They received the Holy Spirit, but they didn't go anywhere. And humanly speaking, it's, it's, it's easy to understand why. While they're in Jerusalem, I mean, they are seeing thousands of people saved a week. Paul preaches uh, Peter preaches one message and over 3,000 people get saved. And then every, the Bible says every day more and more people are accepting Christ as their Savior. So they're in Jerusalem and man, it is going like crazy for them. They are seeing people saved. They are seeing people baptized. People are selling their possessions to give to the church and to help the poor. And they're giving everything they can to, to help get the gospel to the rest of their friends and neighbors. And so it's a great thing happening in Jerusalem for the church, but they haven't left. And so God sends persecution. We see that when the, with the stoning of Stephen. Stephen's the first Christian martyr. But after that, persecution began in Jerusalem. It was strong on the church. And so they scattered throughout the area. They're getting the gospel everywhere else. I mean, even in Jerusalem, the church elders, the church leaders are, are being martyred and killed for their faith. But Paul feels like he, he's been called by God to go back there. So he's like, I'm going to Jerusalem. This is what God's called me to do, but I'm going to die there. So before he leaves the church at Ephesus, he gives them a farewell speech. He gives them the last bit of advice that he believes he is ever going to give to this group of people that he loves. Now, if you were giving a, a farewell address to your loved ones, if you had time and you had, you, you had clarity of mind and you knew something was going to happen, maybe you're going on a trip and you're never going to see him again, or maybe you know you're dying and you've only got a few hours to live, but you've got some clarity of mind and you're like, I've got one last opportunity to give some advice, to, to give some, some, some wisdom to my loved ones, to my children, to my spouse, to whoever it is. I've got one last opportunity to help them to encourage them, to be a blessing to them, to teach them, what would you tell them? What would you tell your kids if this is your last time you're going to talk to them and you want to help them the rest of their life? Yeah, you'd say you love them. I mean, obviously we all know that. But, but if you're like, okay, I've got to take this opportunity to help them with the rest of their life. I've got to give them what they need to know to live a successful, joy-filled, God-centered life what would you tell them? That's exactly what Paul is telling the believers at Ephesus. Now, this passage that we're going to read about in the book of Acts, this is the only prolonged speech recorded in the book of Acts that was actually given to Christians. Every other prolonged speech in the book of Acts is a sermon delivered to unbelievers. So this is the only message and. Yes, it is Paul delivering the message, but it's recorded in the, whole, in the Bible. So we know this is God's word 
to believers. This is God's message to his children using the Apostle Paul to tell us how to have a, a successful life. So I want you to get your Bibles open to Acts chapter 20. Look at verse number 17. We're going to read through a lot of it. We're going to jump around. I just want to read the first few, uh, few verses now. <clears throat> Acts 20, 17. And from Miathus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, You knew from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you all at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind, and with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. And so we're going to stop there. We're going to, again, we're going to look at the rest of the scripture. But this is Paul beginning his farewell address. And so he's, he tells the believers at Ephesus, he goes, look, you know, you know me. I've been here for three years. I've been through a lot with you. I've suffered. You've seen trials and tears and joy. We have lived life for three years together, and now I have to go. Now God has called me elsewhere and I'm probably never going to see you again, never going to speak to you again. So here are some six things that I want to tell you that you should do to live a successful life. Here's the first thing he says to do. Number one, be a witness to your world. Notice, I did not say be a witness to the world. We're supposed to do that. That's a given. We all know that. Paul said, be a witness to your world. Look at verse number 20. He says, and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. Then skip down to verse number 26. <clears throat> he says, wherefore I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. For I have not, for I have not shunned to be declared unto you all the counsel of of God. So what Paul, Paul says twice to them at the beginning of his message is he goes, look, God sent me here three years ago. I've been with you three years and I have done my duty. I have delivered the message that God gave me to everyone I could. To every person I came in contact with, to every person I had an interaction with, I shared the truth of the gospel. So Paul saw himself as the bearer of the message of God. And as a messenger, he wasn't responsible to how people liked the message or how people received the message. He was only responsible for giving them the message. Look, look how he was only responsible how they heard the message. Look, look what uh, Paul says how serious it is. Look again at verse number 26. He says, Wherefore I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. Here's what Paul says here. He goes, look, I've been here three years in Ephesus. Everyone I've come in contact with, I'm innocent of their blood. Their blood is not on my hands. That's an, that's an odd statement. But Paul sees the message that he is delivering as a matter of life and death, because it is. Look what the Bible says in Ezekiel 38, 33, verse 8. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood... I will require from your hand. This is a prophecy that God gave the prophet Ezekiel. And God says there, says, look, if, if there's a man who is born a sinner, which is all of us, if there is a wicked man, a man living his iniquity, and he dies in his sin, and he goes to hell, it's on him if, he heard, if you gave him the message. If you knew the truth and you gave him the message of the gospel and he refused to accept it and he dies in his sin, that's on him. But if you didn't tell him, his blood is on your hands. You're responsible for that man's eternity in hell. He's still going to hell because he still didn't accept God as his savior, but you have his blood on your hands. When you have the truth that can save someone, and you don't share it, God says you're responsible for their eternity. Your, their blood is on your hands. It reminds me of a sermon illustration I've heard, and I've heard 
I'm saying sermon illustration because I doubt it's a true story. It's a great story, but I don't think it's a true story because I've heard it in many different ways. I've heard it about in a snowstorm, in an ice storm, at a dark rainy night, an earthquake. But here's the one I've heard most recently. There was a man who was driving outside of Los Angeles after an earthquake. He is going over a bridge, and all he can see in front of him, it's dark. You know, the earthquake has happened. A lot of the lights are out. All he can see in front of him is the taillights of the car in front of him, and suddenly those taillights disappear. Well, he gets kind of confused, stops his car, pulls over, gets out and, and investigates, and he notices that the bridge has collapsed halfway through. So that car that was in front of him just drove right off the edge of the bridge and down into the ravine or the, the river, and, and, and they died. And so... Obviously, he thought, well, somebody's got to do something about this. So he stands on the side of the road, and he's waving at people, trying to get them to stop. But, you know, four or five cars go by and just plummet over the, the side of the, 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 of the bridge and go to their death. And look, I understand why. If I'm in Los Angeles at night and someone is trying to wave me down, I'm not stopping. I don't care who they are because they're all serial killers in my book. So I get people not stopping. But, you know, he saw four or five cars go over. He, he did everything he could. He was yelling, but no one would listen. Finally, he looks down the bridge, and he sees a bus coming down. He's like, man, this bus is, is full of people. And if I don't do something, that entire busload of people is going to plummet off this bridge, and they're all going to die. So he gets in the middle of the road. He takes off his jacket. He's raving his jacket and screaming. The bus driver's honking his horn. He's flashing his lights. Finally, slams on brakes and stops in front of the guy. The bus driver gets out and just starts cussing this guy. Man, what are you doing? You know, stand in the middle of the road like this. Don't you know what's going on? I could have run over, run you over. And the guy says, well, look at the bridge. And the driver sees that the bridge is out. So him and this other man decide to park the bus across the bridge so that no one else would drive off to their death. Now, again, is this a true story? Probably not, but it's a good truth. This man, whether it really happened or not, he saw the danger. He could have turned around, gone home, and said, well, you know, everybody, I, saw the, I saw it. Everyone else is on their own. I, had, I saw the danger, and everyone else has a responsibility to look for it for themselves. But he, he realized that if he'd have done that, people would have died. Since he had the truth, he had a responsibility to tell other people about the danger ahead. If he didn't, their blood would have been on his hands. And that's what the gospel does for the lost world. It warns people of danger ahead. See, the gospel, it doesn't start very pleasant. It starts by telling us we are all born rebels against God, condemned to an eternity, separated from God in a literal place called hell. We are dead in our sins. We are hopeless under, in, the, in our condemnation. But after the bad news, the gospel gives us the good news, the greatest news that the world has ever heard, that God loved us so much that even though we were rebels against him, we were disobedient to him, we had rejected him and cursed him and left him and abandoned him, even though we had no idea or had no inclination to even find him, he loved us so much that he sent his only son to be born of a virgin and do for us what we can never do. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He completely fulfilled the law of God. And when he died on the cross, he didn't die for his sins or his crimes. He died in our place. He became sin for us while he was sinless. And while he is hanging on the cross, God looks at him and he doesn't see his perfect sinless son of God. He sees the sin of mankind. And so God pours his wrath out on Jesus Christ for the sin of mankind. And Jesus suffered the, the punishment of God that we should have. But because he was sinless, God accepted his sacrifice 
for mankind. And so he, he rose again three days later showing that he was God and that God had accepted his sacrifice as payment for our sins. See, he lived a life that we never could have lived and he died the death that we should have suffered. He conquered death and hell for us and through his death, burial, and resurrection, he offers forgiveness to everyone. And the gospel declares, if you will turn from your rebellion, if you'll admit your need to be saved, if you will admit that you can't save yourself, but he did for you what you could never do, then God will save you. You're not responsible for how people respond to that truth. It's not your responsibility to make sure that they love what you're saying. Because nobody likes to be told you're a sinner condemned to hell. And again, there, there's ways to say it where you're not. I remember years and years, I mean, I, I hadn't been saved very long and was just getting involved in church and I was talking to my mom. And y'all know my mom, uh, she's a Jehovah's Witness, so... Uh, she's with April this week. So April, if you're watching, my mom can listen, put in headphones, because I'm going to talk about my mom for a minute. But, uh, you know, she's a Jehovah's Witness, and so I was, I was talking to her, and we were talking about, you know, uh, religion and things like that, and the Bible. And at that point, I was a staunch King James-only believer. That if you didn't, if the King James Bible was the perfect word of God, if you didn't have a King James Bible, if you were reading anything else, you were reading, you know, the, the wickedness of the devil. I don't believe that anymore. I believe the King James Bible is a great translation. I use it. I like it. But if you're reading the ESV, good for you. You're reading the Bible. The one I don't like is the New Living Translation. Because that is the Jehovah's Witnesses Bible. They take out the deity of Jesus. They take out the virgin birth. They take out the, the Trinity. They take out everything that makes Jesus God. So I don't like that one. Any Bible that does that, I don't like. But so we're talking about this, and you know, she's like, well, your Bible's wrong about this. And I remember telling her, and uh, she kicked me out of her house, and she should have, uh, because I remember telling her, I said, well, you know what? Your Bible was, was uh, translated by a bunch of whoremongers who are burning in hell right now. Not the best way to get a point across. She should have, and rightfully so, kicked me out of her house. So there is a right way to tell people, hey, you're a sinner condemned to hell, and a wrong way to say, hey, you're a sinner condemned to hell. But we got to tell them they're a sinner condemned to hell. And not because we're better than them, because guess what? Before you were saved, you know what you were? A sinner condemned to hell. We're not better than anybody else. We're not, you know, more righteous than anybody else. We just have accepted the truth, and they haven't. So it's not, you're not responsible for how they receive the truth, you're just responsible for telling them the truth. So do the people in your world know the truth of the gospel? Have you made it clear to them, to your family, to your co-workers, to your neighbors, to, to everyone you come with? Because Paul said, I didn't just tell it to a few people. He says, I, for three years, everybody I came in contact with, I told them the gospel. Everyone that I spoke to, I gave them the truth. If they accepted it, great. If they didn't, that's not on me, that's on them. My conscience is clear because I gave the gospel to everyone I could. Look at verse 31. Therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. For three years, Paul told everyone he came in contact with the truth of the gospel. He warned everyone. It was, it was up to them to believe the message, to believe they were sinners, to believe that there was a hell they were doomed for, to believe that God loved them so much he sent his son to do for them what they couldn't do. Now today, people have a hard time believing in the concept of hell. Even Christians today, are not believing in a literal hell. Because why would a loving God create such a place? A place of fire and torment and pain and suffering. Why would a loving God 
do that. And some people, again, some believers think that the descriptions of hell in the Bible, they're just metaphors. There's not real smoke and torment and fire. It's just, it's a metaphor for being separated from God. And look, the worst part of hell is that you are separated from the presence of God for eternity. The, the best part of heaven, you know, we, we know a lot about heaven. We don't know a lot about heaven now, but we know about heaven, heaven later. You know, people are like, oh man, heaven's got streets of gold and walls of jasper and gates of pearl and a crystal river and everybody gets a mansion. Not in scripture, but we like to say that. We all get a big mansion with a great big Olympic-sized pool. And man, heaven's got this incredible, you know what makes heaven so great? Jesus is there. The presence of God is there. Heaven could be nothing but a vast, could be a desert. But if Jesus is there, it's paradise. It's heaven. It's great. So yeah, the worst part of hell is the fact that God's not there. But it still is literal flames, literal torment. Because again, even believers today say, well, you know, it's just, hell is just you die and that's it. You don't get eternal life. All right, if, if that's the case... And when you die and you don't have Jesus as your Savior, you just stop existing. You just go into eternal sleep and that's it. You don't know that you're missing the presence of God. You don't know that you're missing anything. So where's, where's the judgment in that? Where's the, the, the pain in that? Where's, where's the, the realization that you have? Because if that's, if that's all it is, then you know what? Hell's not such a big deal, so why do we got to tell people? If, that, if all this is eternal sleep, I don't know about y'all, but I'm kind of tired. I'd like to sleep for a while. But if that's all it is, we don't got to tell anybody. But the Bible is clear that hell is a place of torment. Look at Revelation 21. It says, who, so he, he who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their portion in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. This is the second death. This isn't just a metaphor for eternal sleep because a lake of fire doesn't sound like a place where you're getting a whole lot of rest. It's a place, Bible says that the torment, the smoke of their torment ascends forever. It is a place of pain and suffering. It is a terrible reality. And here's what I'm trying to get across to you. If you believe that, if you truly believe that there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun and hell is a real place of separation and pain and torment and agony, then it is morally wrong for you not to warn everybody you can. It is sinful for you to know that and believe that and say, but I'm going to keep that truth to myself. You know, Penn Jillette, y'all know, who knows about Penn and Teller, the magicians, the comedy magicians? Penn Jillette is the speaking half of Penn and Teller. Teller speaks to you, but not in their little skit. And so Penn Jillette, he is the speaking, and he is a, a devout atheist. He's outspoken about it. He lets people know, I don't believe there's a God. I don't believe there's a heaven. I don't believe there's a hell. I don't believe there's eternity. I believe once you die, that's it. But here's what he says also. He said, I've always said, I don't respect people who don't evangelize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there is a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think it's not worth telling them because it's too socially awkward or that they'll just tell you to leave you alone. He goes, I don't respect that. And then he says this, how much do you have to hate somebody to not evangelize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them about it? I mean, if I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. So here's a, a outspoken, confirmed atheist, does not believe in God, does not believe in heaven and hell, but says, if you believe in heaven and hell and you don't tell me about it, I don't respect you because you must hate me. 
I don't accept your message. I don't believe your message, but I respect you for warning me. That's our moral duty as children of God to tell people. We have the greatest truth in the world and it demands something of us. It demands that we share it with everyone we can. How they receive it is up to them. If they reject it, that's on them. But not telling them is on us. You know, according to Revelation 20, we will all be present when the unsaved, the Bible says that at the judgment seat of Christ, that the, the dead in Christ will come up, though, no, not the dead in Christ, the, the sea will give up the dead and hell will give up the dead and death and hell and all those who have died without Jesus will stand before God to be judged once and for all. And they'll go through the book of life. I mean, they'll go through the books of the Bible and, you know, see if their life lined up to the word of God. And if it didn't, which it's not going to, then they're cast like a fire. But if I some miracle, you know, because we talk about people like, well, what about Mother Teresa? Yeah, Mother Teresa, great lady, wonderful moral person, better person than me. But if she doesn't accept Jesus as her Savior, it doesn't matter how good she is. Because they're going to look at the book of life and says, well, your name's not in here. And she is cast forever into the lake of fire, a place of eternal torment. And we will be there witnessing people that we could have witnessed to but chose not to be thrown into hell for all of eternity. And we will, we will be weeping uncontrollably at what we could have done but didn't do. You saw there's no tears in heaven. No. Verse chapter 21 of Revelation says, then God will wipe away all tears. But until then, we're going to see people, oh, that's my neighbor. I could have witnessed him. See, well, I, I don't feel comfortable talking to people about religion or talking about people of faith. Look, it's not just going, you know, going through the Romans road. You know who I think embodies this mentality of the Apostle Paul? John McCormick. You go by his house to deliver a package, you know what you're walking away with? Two tracks. Now, he don't sit there and get out his, you know, family-sized Bible and start preaching at these guys, but he gives them the truth. They can read it, they can accept it, they can throw it away on their way out the door. That's up to them. He gave it to them. You can do that. Just, I'm just going to give people a track or invite them to church. If you invite them to church, you know what they're going to hear? They're going to hear the gospel. They can accept it. They can reject it. That's up to them. But they're going to hear it. It's not your responsibility to make sure they, you know, one, two, three, pray after me. It's your responsibility to make sure they hear the gospel. They hear the truth somehow. Giving them a track, just talking to them, whatever. But we're going to see our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers that we could have witnessed to but for whatever reason chose not to. Cast into hell for eternity, and we're going to be heartbroken because of it. Paul said, I'm leaving here a success because I told the truth to everybody I had the opportunity to do. My conscience is clear. Here's the second thing that he said. He's leaving a success number two. How to be a success? Number two, point people to Jesus not to you. Look at verse 19. <clears throat> Serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying and weight of the Jews. Now, most leaders that we know of in our society, in our culture, they do not describe themselves as having humility of mind. Because the word humility of mind, it, the phrase, it literally means having a humble opinion of yourself or having lowliness of mind. Most people we think of as leaders, uh, political leaders or whatever, we don't think of them as very humble people. Oh, they don't think very much of themselves. No, they think a lot of themselves. And, that's the, and Paul's saying, look, I'm nothing. And we see this all in Paul's writing where Paul says, look, I'm the chiefest of sinners. Of all the sinners in all the world, I'm the biggest one. Now, I'd like to go, you know, sin with sin with Paul. I think I'd beat him. But Paul's like, I'm just, I'm, I'm, not, I'm just a broken person following a healing Savior. But I'm nothing. I am lowliness 
of mine. Now, it doesn't mean thinking that you're not worthy or not valuable. It means realizing that you're not everything. It means putting Jesus in his proper place of preeminence. In other Greek literature, this phrase, lowliness of mind, it's used as an insult. But 200 times it's used in Scripture, and every time it's a virtue. So why would Paul take something that the whole world thinks is an insult and say, this is what you should be? You should have the virtue of lowliness of mind. Because Christianity, at its core, is not about great men. It's not about great women. It's about a great Savior that saves and uses the weakest, the most broken, the most guilty sinners to do his work on earth. You know, Paul isn't leaving them with an example to follow. He is leaving them with a Savior to trust in. And he says, look, the weaknesses I have, the trials, the tears that I've endured, they are how God demonstrates that I am sufficient, sufficiently relying on the Savior. Tim Keller says this, A humble and a weak person will show a crucified Savior better to a listener than a polished, pulled-together expert. Because that's not how it happened for us. We weren't saved by pulling ourselves together but by admitting we were sinners and calling on the one who was pulled apart for us. Look, I don't ever want people's attention on me. I want it on Jesus. And again, y'all know my, my story about the, the, you know, I came out of Jehovah's Witness and then I came out of, you know, severe legalist uh, Christianity where people, basically the man, the man of God was an idol almost and you ought to, had to listen to him and do everything he said. Look, and they were considered perfect. I've let you know from the get-go, I ain't perfect. I'm a mess. Again, that song, if you could see where I once was, if you could go with me back to where I started from, you wouldn't come to this church because I'm a mess. But you know what? That's fine because so are you. We're all messes. We're all just broken sinners trying to follow a perfect Savior. So I don't want people's attention on me. I want their attention on Jesus. I don't want to try to show people that I have it all together. First of all, that's not true. I'm as far from put together as anyone can get. I am a broken, I am weak, and I am insufficient. Second reason I don't want people looking at me is because I don't I want you to know I'm just a broken sinner being put together by a healing savior and that gives everybody hope. You know, we don't need a human example. We need a sufficient Savior. That's why Paul says, follow me as I follow Jesus. He didn't say, follow me because I got it all together. I'm the picture of Christianity. Follow me, I know what I'm doing. He goes, I don't have any idea what I'm doing, but I'm following Jesus. So just follow me as I walk with him. We'll make some mistakes, but as long as we're walking towards him, we're doing okay. You know, I don't want my kids to think I'm perfect or to think... I think I'm perfect, because I'm not. I want them to know I'm going to mess up just like they do. I'm going to lose my temper with them. I'm going to blow my top and say things I shouldn't say and react ways I shouldn't react. Why? Because I'm human. You know, Parker, he, um, years and years ago, I mean, he was probably 13, 14, uh, maybe 15, he, he got a, an airsoft gun. You know what an airsoft gun is? It's a BB gun that shoots plastic BBs, but it still hurts. And when he got this stupid gun, I told him, do not shoot it in this house and do not ever point it at anyone because you treat it like a real gun. And just so y'all know, if you have a real gun, even if it's unloaded, you don't point it at anybody because you don't know. I learned that the hard way. I remember one year... Years, I'm getting off rabbit trail, but this is funny. Uh, we were over back still in Rustburg, and April was at a church activity, and I decided I was going to clean my shotgun. And I had a, an old Remington shotgun, and it had a, a switch on the, the, the barrel that you could take it from pump action to single shot. And so I get it, I'm going to clean this thing, and so I'm, I take it out and I pump it four or five times, get all the shells out, I think it's all empty, great. And I pull the trigger to uh, release the firing pin, and it was kind of stuck between single shot and pump action, and I blew a hole in our couch. 
our cat was under the couch. She got away, but we didn't see her for like a week. Because she was like, I'm out of here. And so April comes home and she's like, hey, how's your day? I'm like, oh, well, I, I killed the couch. It's already stuffed, so we're good. So I learned that don't ever treat a gun like, you know, oh, it's unloaded. No. And so I was trying to tell Parker this. You have a gun, even if it's just an airsoft gun, Dad, don't care. They still hurt, they're dangerous. Treat every gun like it's loaded. Well, one day I go into our, our bathroom and there's a little BB-sized hole in our blinds. I'm like, Parker, what happened here? Oh, well, I was, uh, I shot my gun and it went through the blind. Did I tell you not to shoot that stupid thing inside? Yeah, I'm sorry, Dad. And so, okay. Well, then the next day, I'm in the kitchen and I hear Connor screaming bloody murder. Because Parker, the genius he is, takes his unloaded airsoft gun, points it at Connor's face and pulls the trigger. It wasn't unloaded. Now, luckily it didn't hit his eye, but it hit right under his eye. So he screamed bloody. I come in, what happened? Oh, Dad, I'm sorry. I thought it was unloaded. I lost my temper. I broke that airsoft gun. And Con Parker at this time, I mean, again, he was probably 14, 15. He was, you know, a little bit, he's still short of me, but he was a little bit taller. But I'm thinking, he may be too big to spank, but I can still beat the stuffings out of him. And I'm about, I mean, I am so angry. I'm, I am, I am no, I'm, I'm going to punch this kid in his face. I'm screaming at him. I'm yelling. April comes in. She's like, Parker, go to your room. I'm like, no. And I'm just, and she's like, no, good. And so I lost it. Was he in the wrong? Yeah, he was in the wrong. He disobeyed. He shot his brother in the face. He was wrong. But I reacted poorly. But you know what I, what I did? I calmed down. I took a deep breath. I thought, God, you gave me this child for a purpose. And it's obviously not to kill him. So after I calmed down, you know, three weeks later, uh, a couple, about an hour later, I go to Parker. And I said, Parker, what you did was stupid. What you did was wrong. But how I treated you and how I reacted, I, I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry. You know what helps my kids know that I have a sufficient savior more, savior more than anything else? When I can go to them and say, I blew it, and I'm sorry. You may, what you did was wrong, but how I reacted was wrong. I'm sorry about that. That's going to help them get closer to Jesus than me acting like I'm the most holy man that's ever walked the face of the earth and I never do any wrong. And, you know, I may blow my top and yell at them, but I'm in the right and it doesn't matter what they feel like. I don't want them to think I'm perfect because I'm not perfect. I want them to know, you know what, I'm just a messed up, broken idiot who does some idiotic things from time to time, but I've got a forgiving Savior that loves me and he'll forgive me and he'll help me and he can do the same thing to you. That's how we show our sufficiency of Jesus. When we confess our sin, when we show our weaknesses, when we shed tears, when we seek forgiveness and give forgiveness, that's why the prosperity gospel is so wicked. Because the prosperity gospel tells you, you accept Christ as your Savior, your life has no trouble whatsoever. How many of y'all have accepted Jesus as your Savior? Okay, not enough of your hands are up. I'm kind of worried here. How many of you, once you got saved, your life was perfect with no trouble? Yeah. Doesn't happen. Well, then you was somebody really saved. No, that's what the Bible's saying here. See, we show our sufficiency through our pain. Paul says, my life is characterized by tears and trials, and God uses those to keep me weak so I can rely on him. Tears and trials that keep us weak in ourselves so we can be strong in pointing Jesus, a people to Jesus. When you've been broken, when you've been weakened, you can better testify about the strength of your Savior. Paul says, the second thing you ought to do to be successful, don't point people to you. Point people to Jesus. Third thing, these last three are pretty quick. Third thing, invest deeply in the church. Look at verse number 28. <clears throat> Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he had purchased with his own blood. Look, there is one institution that Jesus died for. It's not the Supreme Court. 
It's not Congress. We know that. Jesus didn't die for America. Jesus died for the church over all the world. That's the only institution he died for. He didn't die for your marriage. Now, he instituted marriage and he blessed marriage, but he died for the church. He died to create the church. Paul says, if Jesus poured out his blood for the church, then I'm going to pour my life into it. I'm going to be deeply committed to the church. Your role, look, your role in the church, and when I say church, yeah, there is the church, but Paul is talking to a local church. And he tells the leaders of the local church, take care of those people God's put, in, put under your flock. Put, take care of each other, love each other. So, yeah, the church. I'm talking about the church. Your role in new grace is not the same as Paul's. It's not the same as mine. And you have other responsibilities. Y'all, you know, the church is my full-time job. So I have more time, I have more responsibility, I have more, more burden on me to do. Some of y'all all have full-time jobs, you work, you got different things going on, so you can't give or be here or do as much as I do, and I'm fine with that. I understand that. God understands that. But you're still to be deeply committed to the church. It's not the same, but the church should be the center of your life. The church is the body of Christ. The church is what Jesus uses on earth to get his work done, to get his kingdom built. And we are all a part of it. We are all the body of Christ. Now look, some people, you know, the, the, the foot has a bigger job than the, the, the pinky toe, although the pinky toe is very needy. You're going to know that when you break one. Break your pinky toe. Tell me how necessary that thing is. It is very necessary. But, you know, the pinky toe may not get as much glory as the opposable thumb, but they're all, they're all important. The heart's important, yeah. But, you know, the heart can't work without the lungs. The, we all got to play our part in the church. Secondly, the church is called the bride of Christ. He gave his life for it. You cannot, and again... In our, in our modern-day Christianity, there's a lot of people who are believers, not y'all because you're here, who are like, I love Jesus, but I hate church. I'm going to worship Jesus on my own time, in my own way, doing my own thing, because I hate the church. You cannot love Jesus and hate his bride, because he died for that bride. He shed his blood for that bride. He gave everything for that bride. You can't claim to love him and hate his bride and not serve his bride. So as a believer, we should be deeply committed to, deeply connected to the church. Not just as a casual attender. Get involved. Get invested. Invest deeply in the church. Fourth thing he says to do is, uh, number four, be faithful to obey Jesus. Look at verse 24 again. But none of these things move me, neither count, I, my, uh, count myself my, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy, that the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. This, what Paul is doing here, going to Jerusalem, this was personal to Paul. He'd received a personal assignment from God. He goes, finish my course. The ministry I have received. God doesn't give the same assignments to everyone, but he has an assignment just for you. And at the end of the day, we're, not, we're all going to stand before God and we will answer to God for what we did with the job that he gave us to complete. 1 Corinthians 4.12 says, Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. A steward, of course, is a servant uh, but it was more than just a servant. It was a, a servant that was responsible for something the master entrusted them with. Maybe it was running a household or dealing with the farm or dealing with money. Whatever it is, the master entrusted something to the servant. And the servant's responsibility was to use it as the master saw fit. Now, a steward was using the master's resources how he said. Now, a lot of people will spend their time thinking about how they can be successful. How they can make an impact on the world. That's not the concern of a steward. 
Success and failure are the master's concern. Faithfulness is a concern of stewards. The Bible shows us that God uses ordinary acts of faithfulness to accomplish incredible things. Think about the little boy that Jesus used to help feed over 5,000 people. Probably 20,000 people, just as 5,000 men, not including women and children. So probably 20,000 people. Jesus used this little boy's lunch of five loaves of bread and two pieces of fish. And the Bible says it, it gave everyone enough food to eat until they were filled. They were no longer hungry and had enough left over for each apostle to take a basket full of it. Now, think about how this boy felt. He could have looked at what he had and said, I, I don't have enough to do anything, and just kept it to himself. He could have said, you know what, these, these, these people are going to go hungry, but at least I was smart enough to bring a snack. He didn't look at what he had and said, it's not enough. He was just faithful to let God use it. And God took what he was faithful with and did an incredible thing. It's faithfully parenting your children that does a great work for God. It's faithfully telling people about Jesus that builds his kingdom. Faithfully praying opens the doors of heaven. Faithful serving and giving is what builds his church. God uses faithfulness. Fifth thing Paul says to do to be successful. Number five, finish strong. Look back at Acts chapter 20, verse 23. Save that the Holy Ghost witnessed to every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me, but none of these things move me, neither count myself, count myself dear unto myself, that I may finish my course with joy. Paul was determined to finish strong. Verse 23, he says, The Holy Spirit told him about the hardships that he would face, but none of them concerned him. He goes, I knew I was going to face persecution. I knew I was going to suffer, and Paul has suffered already. I mean, he gets saved, he goes preaching the gospel, and they st he goes to one city, preaches the gospel, and you know how they respond? They stone him to death. See, I was, uh, did he die? I don't know if he died or not, but he says, during looking at that experience, he goes, look, I saw heaven, I saw Jesus in heaven. Was I in the body or out of the body? I don't know. So Paul's even like, I don't know if I died or not, but it hurt. They didn't just, you know, put pebbles at him, they threw boulders at him until he was covered up, and they thought he was dead. So even if he wasn't dead, they thought he was dead. And you know what he does the next day? Gets up, goes 20 miles, and preaches again. So, but he, he goes, I knew I was going to face this stuff. I knew I was going to have trials, but I didn't care. I wanted to finish strong. doesn't matter how, how you start the race. The thing that matters is how you finish it. You know, there are too many people in this life who accept Jesus as their Savior. They start walking with him, and then they walk away. Maybe obeying Jesus every, in every area of their life is too hard. Maybe they didn't weigh the cost of following him, the pain that they were going to have to endure. Maybe they just get burned out following Jesus or get tired of the sacrifice and the trials that come with it. Paul says to be steadfast, unmovable in our service to Jesus because he is steadfast and unmovable in his sacrifice for us. Don't quit walking with God. Don't quit serving Jesus. Don't quit proclaiming the truth. Don't quit shining his glorious light into the dark world. And the sixth thing he says to be successful is number six. Take more than you give. Look at verse 33. Yea, I've coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yea, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities, and to them that were with me. I have showed you all things, how I was so laboring, ye ought to support the weak, and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. The, the last thing that Paul says to the church at Ephesus, the last thing that's on his mind, what he wants to, rem to remind him about most is he talks about generosity. Paul thought a successful, a blessed life is one where you give more than you take. And that's the defining characteristic of Jesus. His life was defined by giving, not receiving. Even the night before his death, he gives to the apostles by washing their feet. You know, if I knew I was going to die tomorrow, I'm not washing any of your feet. 
That's not how, oh, my last night on earth. You know, I want to wash a bunch of stinky feet. Bring it up. But Jesus says, this is my last night. I'm going to be with them, and I'm going to serve them and do for them. He wanted to serve people. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, it's better to give than to receive. He said, he who gives his life will find it. In marriage, in your relationship with your spouse, is it better for you to give to your spouse or receive from your spouse? Now, if you're like, it's better when they give to me, you're going to have a, a, a conflict in your marriage all the time. But if both people in a marriage think, you know what, I'm going to give everything I can to my spouse. If they, if they give back, that's, that's between them and God. I'm going to give everything I can. If you've got two people who are givers to each other, you've got a successful relationship. You've got two takers or one giver, one taker, you're going to have some struggles there. In friendships, do you give more than you take? The key to a happy relationship, no matter where it is, is to give more than you take away. Do you look at your job as a tool to get all you can? Or is your job a tool that you can use to give to the mission of God? And some of you make a, a lot of money, and that's great. But God didn't give you that job or that income to increase your standard of living. He gave what you, what you have, the talents you have, the job you have, the resources you have to further the kingdom of God. It's more blessed to give than to receive. That's the last thing Paul says to the church at Ephesus. Your life is given to you to multiply and to build his kingdom. That's what it means to follow Jesus. You know, his final address to these people who he loved, he served for three years, Paul gives his philosophy of life. He tells us how to be successful. He says, make sure everyone God sends your way hears about Jesus. Point people to him, not to yourself. Invest deeply in the church. Be faithful to what God has called you to do. Finish your course strong and give more than you take. If we focus on these six things, we'll have a life of purpose. A life that is successful in God's eyes. Let's pray. Heavenly